Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 165. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us the internationally acclaimed cartoonist and educator, Merrick Bennett. Merrick! Hey. How you doing? (laughs) (laughs) It's really exciting. I know... I think I've known you for about three years, and for the past three years, you've been working on volume three of the Civil War Diary of Freeman Colby, and something amazing just happened recently. You are now publishing the Civil War Diary of Freeman Colby, Colby, volume three. Well, remember... uh before we started, I said that I'm doing this kind of experimentally. I'm, I'm uh, technically the amazing thing that happened is I'm, I kept working on it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a long, a long publishing process. Um, right. Instead of, instead of waiting till I had everything totally done, I decided this is the month to to do the Kickstarter, and uh, I have all the page art done. Like I have a proof right here that is the full story of the book. Right. Um, and it's come out to be exactly the same length as volume two, actually. So I'm, really? I'm just editing that. It, it was like I realized, oh, this is 470 pages. Wait a minute. And I went and checked and volume two is 470 pages. And I thought, that's a sign. Stop right there. <laughs> so, so I, I kind of threw the Kickstarter together, um, even though, you know, you know how like there's so many pieces of a book, like a table of contents, an intro, the afterword, the source material, right? Uh, something called a cover, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where I had all that set up for volume two for that Kickstarter. So once the Kickstarter ended, I could send it to the printer, you know, and go right. with this. I said in the Kickstarter, okay, we're doing this now uh, because now is the anniversary of half the book takes place this week, you know, right? Oh, wow. Right. Okay. Um, in May in 1864. And, uh, and then, you know, then everybody who's back the Kickstarter gets to watch over the summer. I'll keep posting updates and it'll be like, okay, here's a couple cover designs. Here's the final one. I don't know what we may vote on some stuff. It may just be surprise updates. Uh, but I thought, oh, that'll be really fun to have the backers more involved in that process. So they get to see it because, and maybe that's the teacher side of what I do. Like, I just love sharing the process of these projects. And you're right. It takes several years to put together. that book. <laughs> Well, especially, as you said, that's 470 some odd pages of mm. art in script. And, <laughs> and I'm, and I, I'm really curious over the fact of putting on like my, like business hat to this is like, like, was there was there ever an idea for you to split it in half and make a volume three, 250 some odd pages and then volume four? To... Oh, oh, away with your ideas. Yeah, the, <laughs> the original idea, like volume two is January 1 to December 31, 1863. Okay. Um, this is uh, for folks that don't know the series it's based. It started off volume one is is based on a Civil War diary. 
that mostly takes place in 1862. And all the words come out of that diary. Um, right. And it, it actually ends in, uh, oh yeah, you got it there. It actually ends in April, 1862. And volume two kind of cycles back and starts January 1st to December 31st. Cause you know, that's kind of a nice uh, right. defining period for a book. Um, and then my idea was that volume three would go maybe not right to the end of 1864, but up to the presidential election in November. Because mm. then um, volume four could go from that to all the loose ends uh, leading into 1865 and the end of the war. If you know your Civil War history, right, it ends the war per se, the official war kind of ends April, May, 1865. Um, and the, all the diaries and letters kind of peter out. The stories don't end. People's lives, if they're lucky, go on and the stories continue. Right. Um, but that was my initial plan. Oh, yeah, it'll be the full year 1864. But like I said, I, I got to 400 some pages. and I'm only in mid-May and I realized, oh, I have to redesign this project and the breaking points. It doesn't make sense to go to try to go to the end of the year and rush through things because there's so much here and there's so many stories uh, that to really do it justice, I need to just be present for these stories and I'm at May 15th and the book is a little too long. And so now my editing begins and I trim it down to, be, to fit into a book form, you know? Right. So yeah, that was going to be, that was going to be my, my, my second question for you. It was like when you, you did a, a significant amount of research for this. And this was the other mm -hmm. thing is that, and we, I'm trying to recall the conversations we had is that, you didn't have enough of Freeman Colby's writing, so you subs you actually added in some other letters and some other historical events that you were able to to research to kind of give it a little bit more uh, to fill in some of the gaps. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's one of the things I'm I'm wrestling with in editing the book into shape. Like all the, mm. the stories are drawn and they all make sense in their own right, but they all come from different people's accounts. And my job as the cartoonist now and as the book designer is to like get them in the right order and show them in, in the right context to each other so that when you read through the book, it kind of flows from one story to another and you know who the characters are who are experiencing these stories like those that you're just paging through there um if you go up a little bit the uh like in the in the letters that freeman colby writes home i have one letter from this month of may that he wow. wrote home uh and it's basically because he's he was in combat for two weeks straight you know 15 right. days straight uh running through the woods sleeping in the woods <laughs> Uh, dodging forest fires, you know, he's not writing daily emails home. So he writes one letter and he's like, Hey folks, I'm still alive. And here's one thing that happened each day, you know? So mm -hmm. I have these little anchor points to his story. Um, right. And my original plan was to just stick to that text and have lots of space around those stories and like mystery space where we don't know what happens more. Mm -hmm. It would feel more like an Edward Gorey story or something, you know, where, something happens and you're not sure why. And then suddenly something else happens and you have to figure out the connections. Um, right. You'll feel a little more like that. Yeah. He even says there in that letter, that's a panel from his April 28th letter. This is my only chance to write to dear parents as all mm. communication is prohibited from the front. So he knows he can't write lots of letters. Right. 
Right. Um, so some of those panels you, you scrolled through come from a, a major of a main regiment who was there on the line right next to them, who wrote a detailed account of what happened on okay. May 10th and 11th. So I could draw that uh, from that point of view, you know, and I draw it from Freeman Colby's point of view because he was there. Um, right. And we'll never know exactly what these things looked like. Nobody was, you know, walking around with a camera recording it. Uh, uh, and even so how about like the you, the war in Ukraine, you watch a couple of video clips, you still right. don't know exactly what happened, right? <laughs> you see these little fragments of it, but I, my, my, my Walt Whitman quote as my motto is like the, the real war, the real soldier, the real war will never be written in books. Mm. And, uh, and my corollary is like, so let's try drawing it, you know, right. use the words to get into images that can capture something of the sense of the story. So let me ask you as, as someone who's putting this together and where you're kind of filling in the gaps by, as you said, looking at historically what was happening during that time, do you feel as though when you have to fill in the gaps with other pieces of information of historical reference, do you lose a bit of that intimacy of telling Freeman Colby's story at those points? That, that you can possibly, but I think mm. uh, on the other hand, you also have an opportunity to get to know these characters much more deeply. Right. Um, when when I'm teaching comics and defining comics, I my, one of my favorite um, demonstrations is I'll draw like a stick figure with an ice cream cone, and then I'll draw a stick figure with an ice cream on the ground, and their face is smiling in the first one, they're frowning in the second. Maybe I should just draw this for you. <laughs> Do you want to timestamp it, and I'll I'll share and draw it for you. No, don't worry about that because right. a, a lot of I have a lot of audio listeners anyway. So yeah, okay, yeah. So I'll draw like a figure with an ice cream cone, and then in another panel, a figure with ice cream on the ground. And and what's the story? Oh, they dropped their ice cream or something like that, right? And the I think. Yes, there's there's the idea of putting images in sequence that are comics. One after another creates a story. But I think the next level in is you didn't I didn't draw the ice cream being dropped. I dropped drew the before and the after, and then the reader puts it together. And because you imagine that action, I always tell people, because you imagine that action and I don't show it to you, you experience it on a deeper level. Like you make it happen rather than me saying, this person dropped their ice cream, right? And if I drew it as a three panel comic and you saw the ice cream dropping, it might feel a little clumsy or a little overstated, right? Less right. is more. Um, so I think it's kind of the nature of stories that stories, yes, we add in details and we tell things, we tell stories, but just as important is that we leave things out. Because if you ask me, how was your day? And I said, well, <laughs> my left eye opened first and, you know, and, and went in great detail every moment of my day, we'd be here till tomorrow. So <laughs> storytelling like requires us to take things out. And sometimes those things we take out are at the heart of the story right. or are really central to them, um, especially when you're writing letters home to your younger sisters from a battle zone, maybe. Right. Right. So, nope. so I can't go just on his text. That's that was the lesson of this project. Like I, I can't just trust my main storyteller and just go directly from his text. I in order to get the story, in order to figure out what's going on, 
I have to go to other people who are looking for other angles and have different perspectives and can add pieces into this. Right. If that makes sense. Talk to us. On the, I'm also very curious about, as you, as you brought that up is the editing process. Now, is this something that you give to beta readers to do, or is this something that's intimate to you that you self edit out parts that you've already drawn, as you say, or already did to kind of like narrow, narrow down the story? Yeah, I do a lot of, I mean, the nature of making comics is iterative, reiterative self-editing constantly. Um, and actually the challenge is not to do that too much, you know, otherwise you never finish a page. I have some sections of this book I must have redrawn five, six, seven times um, mm. to the point where I started to wonder like, oh no, am I getting a little uh, <laughs> compulsive <laughs> about this? Like. It, it's been three or four months. I'm circling back. I'm redrawing it. And then I find a redraw in my files. That's like the same approach to the story. Um, <laughs> so I have to tell myself, like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It, as you can see from my artwork, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be clear. And right. we'll circle back and we'll look over the book again in a, in a month or two or at the end. And if you mm. still don't like it, we'll, we'll figure it out then. Um, and then once I get things sort of into shape, yeah, I print up mini comics. I've been doing um, these little one sheet minis like this one through my Patreon that uh, I can print up eight pages on a sheet and I can print up the, the source image that I used for that story on the, uh, on the other side. That's a Winslow Homer engraving from Harper's right. Weekly. And it, it's um, what I used for the two page spread in this story. Um, and it's a little tiny piece of that same, actually from that same section, the majors, um, major small and his account of the charge at, uh, at, um, Spotsylvania courthouse. And, uh, then I can, then I, like, I go to schools and when I visit and I'm teaching a, a school group, I, I make sure I hand out these minis, you know, and, and they get to read them and, and I tell them, you know, please give me some feedback and let me know either in person or through my website, um, and I get good feedback from teachers and sometimes from students too, and families. Do you, so for, for volume three, um, as the, uh, as the narration and the story kind of gets more expansive and there's different, there, there's different actors coming into this. Did you, based off of the style that you're doing specifically for Freeman Colby, did you have to learn how to draw new objects or outfits or anything like that that had to fit within your style yeah constantly because i <laughs> i used i used a lot of um i used a lot of primary source materials even more in this one than than usual mm. uh, for instance that one if you if you go up one panel there that's a little panel from the story of wilbur fisk um and he is he's he's a guy i met uh because I had these gaps in Freeman Colby's story and I went looking for writers who had, um, who had written letters during, from these places at these times. And this is a, at a photograph of Wilbur Fisk of the second Vermont and his collected letters, hard marching every day, which um, edited by Emil and Ruth Rosenblatt. Um, and it's an amazing collection. He wrote all these letters back to coincidentally, the, it, the newspaper was called the green mountain Freeman. Oh. Um, which is just a neat little connection to Freeman Colby by name. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was writing to this um, Rutland, Vermont newspaper, and he wrote these wonderful accounts. And in some of them, he he kind of 
lectures and harangues and motivates and gives these wonderful abolitionist speeches and sermons, really. Um, mm. And that panel comes from a, a space. I, I, frame it, I frame it as he's around the campfire. It's a letter he wrote just before the Battle of the Wilderness. So he's kind of trying to put the war into perspective. Why are we fighting this war? And he writes this letter to his people back in his home state of Vermont. Mm -hmm. um, so I pull that I pull that text out of that letter and then show him around the campfire trying that sermon out on all these other guys in the army in the Army of the Potomac. Um, mm. And I just happen to have Freeman Colby and his friend walk past as he's giving the sermon. Because uh, they were there in the camps. They were out walking around. That's what the guys did when they had a, a little free time in the evening. If they could, they would go out and walk around and find an interesting site or see people in other regiments. Uh, so I take a little liberty with that. I don't know if Freeman Colby went walking around after dinner on the night of May 4th, 1864. Uh, we'll, we'll never know exactly what he did. He could have been like, you know, checking his gear or just sleeping from marching 20 miles that day. Right. But I have a whole bunch of accounts of people who did go walking around and talked with each other and hung out together and smoked pipes together, not knowing what was about to happen the next morning. Mm. Um, and and I thought, well, this would be a great place for Wilbur Fisk to step out and uh, and sort of give the speech that he was actually thinking and writing at the time. Mm. Um, so it's, it's sort of, a, I think of it as, fiction in the sense of I'm composing these panels with my characters. And I don't know if the rows of tents looked exactly like that against the pine trees of the wilderness, but uh, that's the fiction of it. But the nonfiction part is these are actual words that these, the people, these characters are based on said to right. each other at the time uh, and felt and actual things that they expressed. Um, and I think the interesting thing when, when you draw that out, when you read the letter, it's a stark, it's a stark sermon of what the war means to Wilbur Fisk. He says, there never before was a rebellion like this one. Uh, in most rebellions, the people rebel against the few, the many against the few, uh, and, they, and they expand their rights. But in this rebellion, the few, the slaveholders, have rebelled against the people. Um, mm. And this is the people's government and the few have rebelled against it. The slaveholder has rebelled against it. That's why we're fighting this war for, for the people's government. And as I'm working on this, it was January 6th, 2021. And like I, I did a school group that midday. Uh, and then I kind of looked up from that after we had been drawing comics together and having a great time, I checked my news and January 6th is going on. and. And I realized like, oh my gosh, this, this sermon that Wilbur Fisk wrote in the middle of the Civil War suddenly has a different meaning to me. Um, and as I draw it, like, so I'm working in the imagery of the Capitol building, which had just been completed in Washington, D.C. in that just a few months previously. Um, I'm working in his text and the imagery of the Civil War around it. And one thing that um, that he doesn't even mention in that whole sermon of of why slavery must be uh this dragon confederacy must be you know rooted out and destroyed utterly um he doesn't really mention anything other than the politics of it you know he doesn't mention the the people that affects and uh and the people who have been enslaved for generations in that system 
um, because he's focused on the politics in his letter. But as I draw it, I, I get to work in, you know, there were a lot of, for instance, uh, fugitives from slavery who had joined the Union Army and were helping out around camp. They show up, if not in the regimental histories, they show up in the photographs. Um, so from those photographs, I could work them into the scene and then they can they can sort of come into it as he's making his points. They're in the they're in the image also. And then because they're in the image, they get to tell their stories, too. Um, so it's a lot of research to like pull these stories that fit together. But when you find the stories that fit together, they they kind of fall into place like puzzle pieces. And right. the whole scene suddenly makes sense. It just doesn't make sense to talk about the politics of slavery without also talking about the people who have been enslaved and whose families have been directly affected by those political forces, right? Um, so, the, and that's something that's missing from like the military history or the letters that Freeman Colby was writing home. He's not getting into that. So right. those are all the different perspectives that kind of, that deepen it for me. And then when right. they go charging up that hill and, and it's, you know, a, a big scene of chaos and havoc, you know where some of those people are coming from and why they're there and why they're able to do what they do. So let me ask you then this is like, at what point do you freely feel fine with putting in some artistic license and how much of this is a, how much of the stuff that you do is you put in this book and saying, this is sacrosanct. I'm not going to make up this particular part of something. Um, my, my rule is I'm going to, if somebody says something, I'm going to show them saying it, you know, or mm -hmm. writing it. I'm not going to, I might, I might change the wording, but I'm going to keep the sense of what they do. Um, in, in volume one, I, I wouldn't change anything. And if I change the punctuation a little, I'd put a little mark under each panel. Oh, right. Yeah. I remember so that, yeah. when you read that book, you're getting literally what Freeman Colby put down. But my test here in volume two, and even more so in volume three, is um, is if I feel like if I leave something out, uh, it's going to be it's not going to be true to the the bigger picture, mm. uh, because like you know everybody when we when we like I said storytelling is as much taking out as putting in details, and what happens with a lot of these stories. You read like Shelby Foote's multi-volume, The Civil War, a narrative, right? Thousands of pages. And it's it's this novelistic treatment of the Civil War. Almost no mention of slavery. Almost no mention of uh, the African-American units in the Union Army. A couple mentions here and there. But really, that's not his focus. He's a Southern historian, you know. Um, mm. and, and he focuses on the Southern armies. And, uh, and it really gives you... We all give, we all create biased histories. We all have a point of view, right? But it really gives you a view of the war that's very much oriented to military maneuvers um, and big units and orders by generals. And um, mm. and I don't, that's not enough for me. I don't, I mean, that's been done and that's not, I'm not interested in that. And if I'm going to be right alongside Freeman Colby in a day-to-day -day reconstruction of what life was like, if not exactly for Freeman Colby, then for the people around him you know, a composite, it's really a composite picture. Um, and if I'm doing that and I find a little clue uh, that that points in another direction that opens a door onto a much bigger room that has many more stories in it, 
I'm going to go through that door and at least at least hint at it, at least um, at least build it into the story somehow. Um, I give you an example. The um, there's a there's a casual mention in um, his regimental history on on January 28th, 1864. Uh, they there's just a couple sentences in the regimental history. It says we crossed over the river into enemy territory, did a little patrol. And we came back and, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting marching around in rebel territory. No mention of like what they saw or what they found. And I originally drew that. Oh, no, you know what they did see? They could see that rebel units were being replaced with new troops. And they thought, well, they probably think they're all going to desert and come over to us because we're the only ones with food around here. They're all out of food. Um, and that ha ha ha. And then they march back to their camps with that intelligence. Um and one of the artists I'm using to figure out what this looked like, there were several artists right on the scene in that time, in that place in Virginia. Um, and so there are actually drawings of people on picket and the mm. countryside and then patrols marching. And um, I went into the Harper's Weekly right around that time, a couple weeks later, because uh, of course there's a couple weeks lag for these drawings. Whatever would happen at the end of January is gonna come out in the late February. Um, edition. And in the late February edition, there's this picture of all these, um, all these people who have escaped from slavery, who are riding horses, who are riding wagons, who are coming down the road. It's an amazing picture. It's very dark. It's hard to see. But there are all, whole groups of African-American families who are coming down the road, escaping from slavery. And there's a little article that goes with that picture by the artist who was there. And he says, well, there's some interesting scenes from uh, what just happened when I went out on a patrol uh, into rebel territory. And, you know, this this sort of thing, this is typical for what happens on patrols in every part of the country constantly. So and then he proceeds to tell these stories of how people like took their master's horse, saddled it up, put the whole family on it and ran for the Union Army once they saw them. And the Union troops are like, where are you coming from? How are you ready to run at a moment's notice? And and the the people who were escaping told them, oh, we knew you were coming for hours. <laughs> and they're like, but we're an army patrol. We're like, you know, marching through the countryside. They're not supposed to know we're coming. Oh, we knew you were coming for hours. <laughs> well, the word had gotten through the countryside. And the moment the Union army showed up, slavery dissolved. Their enslavement ended and they like threw down their hoes and threw down their tools. They were working in the fields and they had their bags and they grabbed their kids and they put the old people on horses. And suddenly there's like hundreds of people, you know, joining this patrol. And there's no mention of that at all in Freeman Colby's units. Wow. You know, it's possible they didn't encounter that. Right. It's possible they just went out, marched around and then came back and nothing happened. Never know for sure. It's possible they were like like Alfred Wode, the artist, says this is typical of patrols that happen constantly throughout the countryside. So I'm more inclined to think they probably didn't write that into the uh, the official report. Hmm. Right? The official report was the military maneuver. So I have to choose like, OK, they didn't mention it. Do I stick with the fact that they left any mention of that out in this regimental history that's not about the dissolving of slavery? Or do I go with the primary source of the time where this artist whose work I'm using to know what the stuff looks like 
said this happens all the time in every patrol. Right. I'm going to go with that because that's a bigger story. That's a bigger sense of what's happening in January 1864 and what the war is about. And if I left that out, then the reader would have no sense that that was going on. So that's what I mean by I go through the door and I'm like, I'm going to grab what I can story-wise and work it into, weave it into whatever little pieces I already have. And it really, then then we're all looking through that door. We can all see that big, right. big story space there. So do you, what's your what's your opinion when people label your books as history or, or do you, do you, do you do you grab that title or do you say or do you say well it's 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 not exact or how do you so would do, do you consider these like full on like textbook versions of history or I I called I called volume 1 nonfiction okay. um and I think in the bisect codes I I do call it nonfiction because it's more nonfiction than fiction if right. all the text is direct quotes from primary sources and half the panels are direct quotes from primary artwork, you know, right. um, it, it would be deceptive to say, oh, no, it's a dramatization because it's not, it, they're not made up characters. Um, right. The fact that maybe one was a few rivers over or the next state over in one case, you know, that's the creative side of it, but it's creative nonfiction to me. Um, I, I prefer to say like uh, a a graphic novel um, drawn from primary sources. And then mm -hmm. when people, and that's, you know, if you tell people, oh, it's nonfiction, half the readers, especially at like a comics convention or something, are like, oh, okay, um, are the bathrooms back there? You know, <laughs> not that, like I, I learned early on in teaching that the surest way to kill a summer program is to be like, hey kids, history comics <laughs> nobody signs up for it but if you're like comics camp based on you know a diary from the civil war that camp fills up right. uh, just because it's the same material it's the same approach but it's different branding so so it is an important question i guess um right. but i think the title itself the civil war diary if that if you're interested in the history and you come into that from that angle and you pick it up, I want you to immediately see like in the introduction or in the first pages, hey, this is drawn all from diaries and letters that actual people actually wrote about their actual events, if you believe right. me. Um, and then when you get to the end, I wanna be upfront about the little fictions I've made. Like there's this nurse, Sarah Lowe, who when Freeman Colby's too sick to tell his story, well, he's in bed in the hospital for months and he doesn't really, I don't have many of his letters from that period. So yeah, there she is. So Sarah Lowe, she wrote a letter every night. Uh, I don't know how she did it, you know, caring for hundreds of patients in multiple wards. And then she sits down every night and writes like a 20 page letter to her aunt. It's incredible. Um, and the New Hampshire Historical Society has so many of those letters perfectly preserved. You can go check them out in their reading room, hold them in your hands, flip through them. Um, some of them are, I swear, are bloodstained. Mm. Uh, they're powerful documents. So um, so instead of Freeman Colby, instead of just, you know, silence as he sits too sick to write a letter in his hospital bed, well, I pull her in and she can tell about what nursing is like and how she's caring for her patients who are too sick to write letters. So she has to write them for them and so on. 
Right. And then when he's better, he actually starts writing letters for other patients. And she's recruiting teachers. So I draw him as a teacher getting involved to teach the men how to read and stuff. Um, I And at the end of the book, you'll see, oh, she's at Armory Square Hospital. He's at Carver Hospital. They Their paths, I don't think, ever crossed, except she visited Carver Hospital once. Um, but, you know, they're in different hospitals, but they're fulfilling the same roles. And in the book, I just sort of put those hospitals together. It's a composite. And then the teachers that she recruited, well, that's Freeman Colby, the character, stands in for that. And the nurses that helped him, well, she stands in for that. And you, and I'm upfront about those fictions at the right. back of the book. So you come away from the book, I hope, knowing, okay, here's, here's the nonfiction parts and here's the little bitty, little bits of creative fiction that are introduced in. I mean, ultimately, I always say like comics are pure fiction. You're, you're not looking at a person in front of you when you're reading about these characters. They're not right. actually there on the page. It's pure fiction. Right. So, um, so I think it's okay to, to do that if I'm upfront with the readers about it. You know? So what, what, what one story did you, did you see from either, uh, uh, Sarah Lowe or Freeman Colby. What what one story did you get that that just kind of like gave you kind of like that aha moment that shock? Like I I really see that. That is something that I felt like I was there as as you read that. I I feel like I think I have to feel that way to draw the scene to draw any of the scenes. Okay. Um, there's one Sarah Lowe story. I just drew this. It just happened. Uh, I feel like it just happened. It happened on April 30th, 1864. And I, and on April 30th last week, I was that last week on April 30th, I kind of pulled out that letter and I was like, oh, I haven't drawn this story yet. All right, let's work on it today and really get into this and think about this story. And it's, she, she tells about how she was going around the wards, checking on patients, and one patient seemed a little sick. Uh, he needed something for his throat that was inflamed, and, but they couldn't find a doctor. And, and you can just see, like, something's going to happen here. They couldn't find a doctor. Everybody's busy. One doctor says he'll check on him later. She goes and has tea. She thinks it's taken care of. Then she happens back through the ward later and the guy's like not able to breathe. He's in his bed, passing out, not able to breathe. And she realizes he hasn't been treated, you know, and, and she takes that so hard. And, and it's this frantic scene of her and they finally get a doctor to come. They have to basically improvise a tracheotomy mm. uh, without the right tools. And she's there, uh, you know, she says at the end, it's the most overpowering thing that's happened to her yet in her career yeah. as a Civil War nurse, which is saying something. Uh, I think partly because she took it so personally that she kind of felt like she should have done something earlier or mm. made something happen earlier. So, I mean, there, in order to draw that scene, you can't draw that scene if you're not empathizing with all the characters involved, you know, the frantic mm -hmm. doctors, the patient who's struggling to live and, and, and just about dying. And, and this nurse who's telling the story, who's right there, who, who has her hands 
with the sponges covered in blood as they're trying to save this patient. Um, and I found, you know, I, I was in, in editing and going through the panels. I found there were certain panels where I wanted to focus on the patient and maybe his facial expressions. What did the patient look like? She doesn't describe him, of course. You don't, you know, you don't get into a description of what the patient looks like when you're telling this dramatic scene. Right. Um, at, although it's interesting, she gives the patient's name. And if you go into the archives in the historical society, she collected photos that her patients gave her and her fellow nurses gave her. So sometimes you can go through those photos and on the back, there'll be a name written and you can pair them with some of the stories and oh, be like, oh, awesome. found you, you know? Wow. And, um, and there's some amazing photos in that collection. Um, and, but I haven't done that with this patient. It's possible we could figure out what they look right. like, but it's not important to the story. So, it, so your question, like, you know, what, how does that affect me? I'm like, I don't know what the scene exactly looked like, but in my drawing of it, I have to sort of put myself into all these characters and figure out whose face do we need to see? What actions do we need to see at any given moment in the story? Um, and then I kind of play with that and, and edit it and change the panels a lot. Um, right. And hopefully, hopefully it's done. I may go back and edit it some more. So let's talk a bit about your, your pledge levels. You got some pretty fun pledge levels here and much you, as we say, you are a, you know, you are a, a consummate educator and I love the fact that you've put in here, uh, you know, you have your, your, your $10 pledge level for your ebook. You got the $20, which is kind of like the bread and butter one where you yeah. get the paperback. Um, for $30, you're able to get a print book signed and sketched. So do you draw inside of it? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I did that with volume two. Also, I, um, I think I told people if you have a character or a civil war, you know, celebrity person that you want me to draw, let me know. Uh, otherwise I'll just pick somebody from the story. And then, um, and then I, I, there's a, there's a page at the beginning of the book. And then I, I think I did them as colored pencil sketches. So they're oh, little cool. stick figure vignettes of the characters under a tree or marching okay. or doing something. Those are a lot of fun to do because, um, you know, you just get a stack of books and think about the backer. If I know them or if I don't know them, I'll sort of pick a character and, um, and work it into the, the title page in some way. And then you get the $32 pleasure. So that's actually a really good deal. That's basically $16 per book oh, for yeah, two signed right. copies. Oof. <laughs> Yeah, I mean this the the Kickstarter, the way I think of it, the Kickstarter is is just raising money to um to print the book, right? It's right. Yeah. I'm not trying to make a living through the Kickstarter because that's you know, it I've been working three years on this book. <laughs> right. Yeah. To try to to try to fund your 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 lavish cartoonist lifestyle for three years by doing a Kickstarter and it's not. I, I cut the prices. The final prices for these books tend to be like $20, $24, something like that, um, right. just because of retail. So I figure, well, I'll cut a little bit off. And if you want to order two, this is the time to do it. Share it with a friend. I'm, I'm so glad right. that people can, as long as I'm not losing money on it, I'm, I'm so glad to be getting these out to new readers. Right. And that's true because then if you look at, for instance, you have your um, and you, you do get your print book plus free books for schools, which I think is amazing. So you're able to 
get a book for yourself and also get one for, for a, a teacher or a library. Mm-hmm. And then I love the fact that you have the complete set so far, volumes one through three. You have seven backers on this. That means you have seven new readers. Oh, yeah. Right. Who who haven't had the full set so far. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking forward to um to seeing the three together. I mean, ultimately, there's there's this isn't the final book in the series, 1864, May 1864. It's not the end of the story. But yeah. um, it's just so satisfying to to see them together. And I've actually started, I've been going back to both volume one and volume two. And reading through them, I guess it's because as I edit the beginning of volume three, I've got to like go back and get my speed up and read through volume two. So I hit volume three <laughs> and I feel like how it needs to start, you know, and that's kind of fun to go back and see. And so you have also for $200, someone's able to get one of the original pages yeah. as an artwork. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And some of them are kind of a. Uh, I'm not sure how I'll do it exactly. Some of them are like two or three pages with mm-hmm. variant panels that then I assembled to make the final page. Um, I'll probably make a couple of those available for people who like process and then a couple finished pages. Right. Yeah. I'll just pick a selection and, and maybe give people first come first serve, uh, you know, picks of what they're interested in. And so what is the, talk to us a bit about your $300 pledge level, the civil war cartooning session. Oh, that I was thinking that would be kind of fun to do. Like that's what I do when I go to libraries or go in and visit school groups is, um, mm-hmm. is I'll, uh, I'll go in and, you know, if they're studying the civil war, great. We, I can show them lately. I've been showing the page I'm working on that day. Um, and then, you know, helping them build their own pages on their own topics using their own sources. Um, right. In this case, it's a it's a five book set. It goes out to you. You can share them around with friends. Um, and then we'll schedule a time to all get together on Zoom or some or Google Meets or something. And um, and whatever you're interested in, we could um, look at a specific scene or something from the book, or we could draw something else that you want to do, or we could. Um, we could all work together to draw a single letter if everybody took a page, you know, and, and drew a part of it. Um, I'll check in with you beforehand and we'll see what you want to do. Um, or it could just be a how-to thing where, you know, we, I show you a couple of characters and then we build a scene and take suggestions from everybody. And, and maybe, maybe they all go together as one long panorama or something in the end. Um, We'll have fun with it. This is great. And like Merrick, once again, congratulations for hitting your goal. And uh, you already have 67 backers. You still, as of this recording, you got uh, about three weeks left mm-hmm. on it. So that's exciting. That's really well, we've, exciting. We've got some stretch goals coming up. I just, uh, we've actually, we're almost past the first one. I have to post them soon. <laughs> <laughs> but like like with volume two, you know, I I did a bunch of things with volume two that that I really liked. Um, we had we volume two has some maps in it, but mm-hmm. the backer copies in the end, you actually there was a fold out map at the back that I could insert oh, cool. and, and paste into the back. So then you fold out a big map on on nice parchment paper, um, and I was really glad we could do that. So that's like one of our first stretch goals, right? 
there's a couple things like that, that since we've got the month, you know, I want to keep putting materials out there that people can share, um, getting the word out and just reach as many readers as we can with this. So thank you for hosting this and, and showcasing it. It's great. And I got to say too, as a, somebody who's also a fan of your, your, your Patreon page, I highly recommend folks mm-hmm. to Jeff, definitely check out Merrick's Patreon. You get some really nice stuff on here based off of, you know, the posts and, 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 the, and then you also just to be able to see stuff as it goes, I think is, a, is, is really fun. So for those that are, are fans of Merrick's work and those that are fans of just learning more about comics in general, I can't think of a better place to follow along than, than joining a Merrick's Patreon page. So hmm, thank you. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it. It's been, it's, I've been getting some really good feedback and actually people have really helped me make the book better and, and make all the projects better through yeah. their comments and feedback. So thank you. Yeah. You know, and no moss growing, no moss growing on you as a Rolling Stone because you have, you did the Turner part of the Turner family stories. You also worked on the most costly journey over the last couple of years as well. And plus, you know, plenty, plenty of uh, workshops, virtual workshops. Uh, You're staying busy, Merrick. Oh, I know. (laughs) It's been, it's been, uh, you know, I, I always say I'd rather be overwhelmed than underwhelmed. So, right. yeah. so I just keep, uh, keep drinking from the fire hose and it's, it's really <laughs> fun. Yeah. But Perfect. It's, it's, it's just, I, I really feel intense gratitude to be able to do this work um, right. and, and to work with the people I get to work with both past and present and, uh, and future. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Merrick, for coming on. And I'm really excited uh, to see Volume 3 come out. So am I. Yeah, we'll be in touch. I'll keep you posted. Perfect. All right. Nice to talk with you, Barney. Yeah, no. Do you timestamp this again? God, I love time. I love time stamping. My goodness. Mm-hmm. So this is some. This is a discovery I just had. You know, recently. Like, like, so I don't have to like watch the whole thing and just kind of figure out where my my ums and pauses are. Then I just do it as we do it, Merrick. This is the best right. part. <laughs> well, the, the other option is every time you make an um or a pause, you just like wave your arms or jump around. And then as you're walking fast forward, you'll see those moments. <laughs> That's a good idea too. You have to be sure to get them all. Because <laughs> it's just me just waving my arms back and forth. They're like, what's going on here? <laughs> um, always, yeah. So...